This is Sally Ward-Foxton, EE Times correspondent in London. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and this is your briefing for the week ending November 8th. On the agenda this week, a report from the Lindley Conference, traditionally a goldmine of intelligence about where the processor market is going. After one of the flakiest no-shows in high-tech history, secretive startup Grok finally speaks. And we have a conversation with MEM specialist and futurist Peter Hartwell, chief technical officer of TDK and Vincent's. The technology transcends and it becomes transparent. And so if I look at where I'm trying to go moving forward, it's how do we make that technology exactly just disappear Mm -hmm. into around us to where we're no longer actually surprised that the technology worked or it did something. Uh It just becomes natural. There are dozens of conferences about processor technology every year. The Lindley Conference is one of the few you can go to and be confident you'll hear revelations about new silicon likely to be commercialized in coming months. Our friend Kevin Crewell from Terius Research knows his processor technology, having worked at NVIDIA and AMD and other places. He's a frequent guest, and we invited him back to hear about what he saw at the most recent Lindley Conference. Kevin, thanks for coming back with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So you were at the Lindley Conference. Uh, did you sense any particular themes this year? Well, uh, the Lindley Processor Conference is um, usually, you know, focuses on more traditional compute um, applications. But this year, the um, uh, AI startups just uh, and, and IP vendors just took over the show for a large extent. Um, either the majority of the presentations were about machine learning and AI accelerators uh, from IP vendors and chip vendor, uh, chip vendors. Um, and uh, you know a bunch of those were all these little startups uh, trying to find a, a niche in the marketplace. So um, I just to go off on a bit of a slight tangent since you mentioned it, is do you think that's because um, AI is hot hip and happening? Or are there is there a slowdown in what we would consider the old traditional markets for processors? Well, it's actually a bit of both. Um, if you are a startup and you want to build a chip uh, and you want to go to VCs and get funding, you damn well better have AI in it because <laughs> in your in your uh, pitch because a few years ago it would have been IoT or uh, but now it, it almost it looks like almost every chip company I see getting funded at the moment. Um, has uh, some relationship to machine learning or AI. Even companies that didn't start off that way have migrated towards that. Um, uh, some some companies have started off uh, building uh, data flow chips or uh, no alternative FPGA architectures, and all of a sudden they've all learned that there's a real market for um, machine learning accelerators, and they're all going after it. So there's a lot more companies, I think, than there is market at the moment. To sustain sustain these many companies. Well, let me ask you about the Lindley Conference first and what happened there. Sure. Um, talk to me about some of the the processors that you saw and that impressed you. 
Well, being a traditional microprocessor guy, uh, so to speak, um, you know, having run microprocessor forum and written microprocessor report in the past, you know, mm-hmm. it, that's always the, the kind of thing I key in on of the regular traditional processors. And uh, there were two really interesting presentations. One was Intel's Tremont, which is um, the latest version of what we used to call the Atom Core. I, I think I think calling it an Atom Core is actually understating the performance level of this chip, a Tremont chip. Mm-hmm. It's going to be in 10 nanometer, and it's uh, part of a multi-chip solution in uh, an upcoming product. It'll be paired with Sunny Cove in an interesting chip um, that mixes kind of like a big little solution where Sunny Cove is the big core, Tremont's the small core, and they're going to be in a uh, platform called Lakefield. And um, there's going to be other applications for Lakefield uh, in addition to uh, uh, small form factor PCs. Um, And then we'll see Tremont Core in a number of different applications, not just in Mm -hmm. PCs. The interesting about Tremont is that it's still a uh, high performance, has a lot of IPC. Um, It's got a three instruction decoder. It's got wide issue, yet it's designed as their low power core. Uh, And yeah, it's going to show up in lots of products, and it's actually very uh, great looking um, uh, out of order core with, you know, Big reorder buffer and uh, lots of performance capability. It's just probably going to be on the lower side in terms of clock speeds. In order to kind of balance off with the highest performing Sunny Cove, they're probably going to keep the uh, Tremont uh, processor clock speeds, you know, lower in the sub three gigahertz range. But uh, Intel wouldn't be exact and wouldn't be specific about it. Mm. So with uh, with PCs, for instance, um, I mean, is this mm-hmm. uh, is are we talking about uh, is Tremont really for all those other applications, or are there uh, things uh, you need more power for, uh, better performance for on a PC these days? Well, it it gives you the the Tremont core is designed for um, good single thread performance. So that mm-hmm. means that most all programs will perform well on this core. Mm-hmm. You may not have all the clock speed you get on a uh, a big core in uh, the burst frequencies, uh, but it'll perform you know nicely on on uh, the vast majority of the workloads, and and you'll probably see this uh, core in future Pentium uh, branded processors. Okay, all right. So that was uh, one. You alluded to a couple of uh, mainstream processors. What was the other? Well, the other, um, and this goes to the more of a startup, and this is the uh, Risk Five startup called Sci Five, uh, founded by some of the original designers of the Risk Five instruction set, and they've come up with their family called the U Eight family, and this is their first out of order core, so they're still coming up the 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 food chain here from in order cores. Now they've got their first out in, out of order core, and it's you know uh, it's got uh, two you know ten to twelve stage pipeline. Um, and uh, it's got a three-issue uh, 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 architecture, um, and it's you know there's a, there's going to be a, a sort of a hardened version of it called the U84 for people who don't want to mess with all the different adjustments you can make on the U8. So there's one more of a standard uh, U84, which kind of looks a bit like a uh, ARM Cortex uh, A72, and um, it's you know it's a 64-bit core. 
Um, it's you know reasonably performant. We think uh, once they have uh, some silicon and we can do some test and there can be some testing on it. But uh, it's their first out order core. And the interesting thing about this whole uh, sci five ecosystem is that um, a lot of the architecture is is actually configurable. They have a tool chain that allows you to make adjustments to the core, like how many issues, how uh, some adjustments, like if you want floating point, you don't want floating point. Um, and, and you can really tweak the core uh, to exactly what your performance needs are. You, you're not stuck with a specific implementation. Um, you've got a lot of adjustment uh, you can make as a chip designer to how to use this core. So that, that's a interesting value proposition uh, that Sci-Fi brings to the market. All right. Uh, so let's get to uh, that uh, that avalanche of little AI companies. Can you give us kind of an overview of uh, where uh, these processors are heading, or are they all so different that you got to take them one by one? Actually, uh, you know, they're, they're very, very different from each other. Um, some companies are um, – are are going to extremely low edge case um, situations. Uh, Ada Compute has a um, microcontroller that uses a Cortex M3 plus a custom DSP, and it does. Um, and the design is actually semi asynchronous, where if you adjust the voltage, adjust the, the speed of the chip, and and they're designed for extremely low uh, power capabilities, where they can run for years on just four AA batteries. Um, then you've got companies like Brainchip, which uses a spiking neural net, and uh, their their uh, application uses digital versions of spiking neural nets, and their key is very very low bit activations, one, two, or even four bits at most, and try to keep the power down. And um, uh, another company, Mythic, is doing a is doing a graphic uh, data flow, uh, but it uses flash memory as an analog. Uh, compute and memory architecture. Um, so you see all these different companies going in many different directions. Uh, uh, Gray Matter Labs, which is GRAI Matter Labs, also has a data flow uh, with a neuromorphic uh, a processing model, which tries to model after the brain. And Intel um, also showed their LOHI um, architecture that's in the labs. It's also a neuromorphic design. So some of them are, you know, we see data flows, we see neuromorphic, we see spiking neural nets, we see uh, FPGA vendors like FlexLogic and Lattice. Um, all these vendors are uh, going after this market with many different architectures and styles and into which are unique. Yeah, it sounds like they all have... Uh, different approaches, different techniques, different technologies, different ways of doing things. Are there enough AI applications? Uh, are there enough different kinds of applications out there to sustain all of these companies? I would say there is not. Uh, there, these are there's too many um, uh, chip companies uh, going after this market, and the fact that they can find little uh, niche applications for it doesn't necessarily mean it's a sustainable market over time. They can grow big enough. So what would normally you expect to happen over time is that uh, these smaller companies are gobbled up by bigger companies that can aggregate their application with others, or um, some way just disappear and go away. They're just uh, the the market is too small and and there's too much overlap between them and other competitors. Um, 
and a few might make it big. I mean, there's a couple of companies that are going after the data center, uh, like Habana and uh, Chronix, uh, going after the data center. And there they have to compete with NVIDIA and Intel uh, and GraphCore. And that's a tougher market. But the guys going after Embedded and IoT, um, it's you know very diverse marketplace and it's very large. But still, I would expect a number of these companies to uh, be absorbed by larger companies as the applications grow. And and in some way, just turn into IP companies and you know sell their IP that you just don't find it's a big enough market to uh, build chips and try to sell those. So it'll be uh, an interesting next couple of years, huh? Yes. And that's the fun part about this is we have so many different vendors in this marketplace. Um, it may be hard to follow, but it also makes it really interesting to follow and keeps us, uh, keeps us busy. <laughs> and, and keeps us inviting you back. Kevin, thank you so much for being here again. My pleasure. Kevin Crewell from Terius Research. His report from the Lindley Conference is on eetimes.com. There's a convenient link on the page with the transcript for this podcast. AI companies do seem to be hogging the news lately, which makes the following interesting. One high-profile startup created the impression it was about to make some big news, but then didn't. Startup Grok was a no-show at a conference it was co-sponsoring. Here at EE Times, we've been trying to recall if there's a precedent for that. We stumped ourselves, and some of us have been involved with the high technology industry since the 1980s. Sally Ward-Foxton finally got a chance to talk to Grok recently. International editor Junko Yoshida talked to Sally about what the company said. Hi, Sally. How are you? Hi, Junko. Good, thanks. This is the interview, actually, I was really looking forward to. (laughs) Because um, here's the thing. When, you know, you and I, or the EE Times, write a lot of stories about AI and especially AI startups, right? So what? So when one of the most secretive AI accelerator startups in Silicon Valley doesn't show up at a conference of which the company was one of the major sponsors, of course everybody starts wondering what's going on, right? So and especially when that AI startup is Grok, which is you know backed up by. Big investment, and uh, it's got this well-known uh, Google pedigree. You know, everybody sort of envious and also jealous, and uh, everybody wonders what's going on. So tell me that you had this big scoop. You recently talked to Grog's top management team, right? What was their excuse, or what was their? How did they explain for their no-show? at the AI Hardware Summit in September. Yeah, so certainly from the outside, it looked like they'd chosen that event to come out of stealth mode and then basically chickened out. Um, I also, you know, between us colleagues, we speculated at the time about whether they were about to be acquired, but no, that's not what happened. Uh, Finally, I got to speak to Grok to find out what really happened. Uh, I spoke to Jonathan Ross, Grok's CEO. He said they were dealing with a company uh, with a customer issue that took priority, which meant they didn't have time to finish the demo they were working on. So rather than just present the company with no demo, they decided to withdraw completely. Right. Did you believe him? <laughs> well, well, I've no reason not to. Uh, I feel like if they were going to make something up, they could have made up something better. Uh, but 
It does seem a little bit odd. I mean, why not send somebody to present the company slides, you know, the company pitch deck and tell us something about the company. Remember, because they were in stealth mode up to now, they would have had plenty to say. I mean, rather than just withdraw completely at such a late stage, which was a PR disaster. I mean, it was quite embarrassing given they were a sponsor at the conference and everything when they didn't show up. So yeah, very strange decision. Right. So are you saying that Grok has never shared any architectural diagrams or they have never shared any of the uh, the concept of the architecture before? So up to now, they haven't shared anything. The website was just one page with not really much on it. And they're still, even for, for a company that are coming out of stealth mode, they still are very secretive. Even the slides that... Uh, that they showed me during our uh, meeting, they wouldn't let me have a copy of. There was a product photograph even, they wouldn't let me have a copy of. So yeah, they're, they're very secretive, uh, even still. So let's get, get back to the interview you had with uh, Grog's uh, management team. I think that involved not only CEO, but also chief ac- architect, as well as VP of engineering. Is that it? Uh, that's right, yeah. I spoke to uh, Dennis Abs, is the chief architect at Grok. I also spoke to uh, Michelle Tomasco, the VP engineering, uh, and the COO, Adrian Mendez. Okay, all right. So, um, how did they explain how's Grok's approach to AI or AI hardware essentially different from a lot of its competitors? So they're doing software-defined hardware. Um, they developed this compiler almost before they developed the chip, and the compiler takes on some of the tasks which would normally be done in hardware. So you basically feed in TensorFlow, and then the compiler does all the execution planning and orchestrates the data flow and all the timings uh, within the chip. Because such a lot of it's done in software, it means you can get rid of a lot of the hardware control functions in the chip to do with things like synchronization. You don't need uh, speculative execution, branch prediction. It, it makes things a lot simpler. The advantages of doing it this way is that everything becomes completely deterministic, completely predictable. There's no long tail latencies. You know exactly what the latency will be and how much power you're going to need right from the start, right from compile time. And this predictability is very attractive to some applications like data centers and autonomous vehicles. Right. So it's, but it is sort of like um, turning the whole approach to AI on its head in a way that you do software um, development first, or the uh, you, you focus a lot on the building of the software compiler, and then going back to the AI hardware. Is that it? That's it. Uh, you can almost uh, do all the software and use the compiler before you've got the silicon, so you can almost get a head start that way. That's actually kind of new, in my opinion. So a lot of times when we talk to chip companies, they say they talk about chips in great detail and hardware. And then at the end of the presentation, they usually say, oh, by the way, we've got this compiler, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is is uh, is also about the compiler. It's The story is both about the chip and about the compiler. Um, certainly, they think it's very new and novel. And as we find out more about the company, we'll, you know, we'll find out how new and novel it is. Um, certainly, there are other companies in this space, such as Samba Nova is one that said they're doing software-defined hardware as well. Although, we don't know anything about Sambanova, really. They're still in stealth. So, yeah, we'll find out as uh, as more details emerge with how new and novel this is. All right. So, well, you just mentioned uh, software-defined hardware. Um, I think Grok 
also the basic concept, as you explained in your story, is the software-defined hardware. You know, that sounds a lot like FPGA in, you know, in layman's <laughs> point of view. <laughs> but it looks like the Grog CEO is adamant that it is not an FG, FPGA. How did he explain that to you? Yeah, so the <laughs> phrase software-defined hardware combined with all this talk of determinism, predictability, really makes you think of FPGAs. But Jonathan Ross said to me, he said explicitly, this is not an FPGA. It's not an FPGA. There's no lookup tables or anything. Um, and you can reconfigure the Grok chip every cycle, he said. Um, I think it's a similar idea in terms of knowing what the chip is doing exactly all the time and reconfiguring it with software. But no, it's definitely not an FPGA. So, um, where does Grog go from here? Can you uh, tell us some of the roadmap that they shared with you? Well, I would if they had shared a roadmap with me. <laughs> um, all we know at the moment is they've uh, they've got the silicon back, which is now going into production. Uh, they say they're getting traction with customers already. They've apparently been shipping their chip on a PCIe board since August. Um, so hopefully they can start to get some design wins. Um, there's certainly, so that one of the things about the chip is that it can handle both inference and training, although they're very much focused on the inference market right now. So moving forward, like in a future generation of products, I guess they could start to tackle training. Um, I think we'd all love to see that demo as well, this famous demo that wasn't right. ready. Maybe they'll do some more events <laughs> and we'll, we'll finally get to see it. All right, then. Um, I guess uh, it's one of those stories. Stay tuned, right? <laughs> yeah, stay tuned for more. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Sally has technical details in her story on eetimes.com. We are at the beginning of the Internet of Things. It's a deliberately vague phrase meant to stand in for all the many disparate ways we'll be able to use technology to vastly expand the ways people will be able to understand the world and interact with it. That means studying the world with sensors. And many, if not most, of those sensors will be microelectromechanical systems, or MEMS. So if you want to get a fairly comprehensive view of where the world might be going, talk to a MEMS specialist. Peter Hartwell has been working on MEMS for over 25 years, including at HP and a long stint at Apple, where he was involved with the integration of various MEMS devices across the entire Apple line. It's no exaggeration to say that Apple's integration of accelerometers, gyroscopes, magnetometers, pressure sensors, proximity sensors, and ambient light sensors enabled some of the most important differentiating features in some of the most popular consumer electronics devices in history. Hartwell is now the chief technical officer of TDK InventSense, where he is exploring ways to make IoT technology invisible. The idea, he says, is to make it so that we no longer notice the technology are no longer surprised when it works or doesn't work. It just feels natural. Hartwell is a new inductee in the MEMS and Sensors Industry Group's MEMS Hall of Fame. Anne-Francoise Pellet, our editor in Paris, caught up with Hartwell in San Diego at the MEMS and Sensors Conference, where he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. She asked him about the technology roadmap at InventSense. So we're we're doing a lot of work right now on ultrasonics. Mm -hmm. um, and before the acquisition, inside Event Sense, we we had a very nice ultrasonic fingerprint sensor. Um, after we were acquired by TDK, together we acquired another mm -hmm. company, Chirp, um, doing ultrasonic range finding. It's such a great fit inside TDK because of TDK's uh, um, 
uh, knowledge in ultrasound materials. Um, it's one of the very big business units inside TDK. And so it's, it's just this perfect marriage of new materials and new MEMS devices coming together. And I think that's where we're seeing the application space mm. explode. Um, you know, as we heard at this conference today, you know, electrostatic actuators have gotten us so far. And now this piezoelectric stuff is maybe going to take us, take us to the next step. For me personally, I think I like, I like the expansion because we're looking not just at sensors now, but we're also looking at actuators. So the, the, the chirp device is putting out a sound pulse and then, and then looking at that echo coming back. So it's both a, both a sensor and an actuator. And I think, you know, back to my, my, my original comments on, on sort of sensors making computers smart mm -hmm. and, and sensing what's going on. If you can't then manipulate what's going on, that's really the next step, actuation. Mm -hmm. So for us, I think ultrasound is that first step towards actuation, towards mm -hmm. smart systems being able to, to influence and stuff in the physical world. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the, the direction where I, I, th I think the thrust of, of what we're really looking at right now. I see. Um, um, as a CDO, you're probably keeping an eye on what's emerging from research labs. Um, uh, what, which interesting MEMS and sensor technologies, um, excluding TDKs, <laughs> have you seen recently? Um, to me, um, one of the places I'm key on monitoring is actually, you know, um, med tech or, or you know, um, not necessarily the biomems in the sense of I'm mm -hmm. trying to replace laboratory equipment, but but where it where it can really look more mass market as things that you're going to maybe be able to do at home or or to be in a wearable device. That's the place I really right now I'm keeping my eye on. I think I think it's logical to say that somewhere in 20 to 40 years from now you're going to be wearing an all-time diagnostic monitoring system. <laughs> the question is how do we get there? What are mm -hmm. the steps that are going to going to take to to get us there? And so that's. The place I'd have to say um, where I keep my eye most most keenly um, is that. Um, the other one right now is the explosion of, of optical sensors. Yeah. Um, you know, we're seeing this in, in, in LiDAR, we're seeing this in structured light, mm -hmm. 3D imaging. Um, I'm, I'm going to, you know, cheat a little bit and throw radar into that mm -hmm. category. Um, and in fact, you know, what, what's neat about seeing those technologies, a lot of them being developed for automotive. Mm -hmm. The reason we all carry around MEMS accelerometers in our phones is because they started off in automotive. And so one of the exciting things to think about is that trend of optical sensors mm -hmm. that as the volume increases in automotive and as the cost and power gets driven down, as it always will, you're going to start to get, you know, even toys yeah. with radar, right? So mm -hmm. Google, Google launched the Pixel 4, which now has sort of a radar sensor in it. That's the, kind of the first we're crossing that line of radar into a consumer, really consumer <laughs> device. I can't wait to see what the toy guys think of when suddenly you can you can put a radar on a toy robot and what we can do, right? The, the gyro gave us the hovering heli helicopter, right? Which is which has been this, you know, really just it's it's such a novel toy. I can't wait to see where optical 3D sensing radar lighter what what that's going to do, especially in the toy space. That's that's what I'm looking forward to. Wow. Um, my final question: um, How are you finding the Congress so far? Uh, what are the key takeaways you want to share with us? And we attended the technology showcase. Maybe you want to talk about one startup that you found interesting. Just tell us. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so I, the, uh, I think it's been a fantastic meeting from its uh, diversity of speakers, actually. What, what I really appreciate about this meeting is, is you get experts who are in sort of the, the sensing space, but really take mm -hmm. along a variety of them, whether you're looking at actually people developing sensors all the way to sensor users who get up there and say, oh, I'm not a sensor person, but I use sensors all the time. Um, and, and, and it just helps you get a pulse on sort of where what's going on in the industry. Um, the technology showcases is really great um, because you, you get to see the, the startup companies, you get to see people who believe in an idea so much they're going to risk their ability to put food on the table to go <laughs> pursue that idea, right? And the, you know, to me, I'm also really into AR, VR stuff right now. Mm -hmm. I believe the way we're going to record experiences and share them with people um, is actually going to be what's going to bring VR into um Again, the non-gamer hands, right? To, to go back to my early, early analogy. Yeah, exactly. Gaming will always be there, but that's not what's going to drive this. Mm -hmm. um, I've played around a lot with technology that's commercially available. To me, seeing seeing another 3D camera today and when someone's trying to do uh, laser-based, I think that one, that's, again, to me, I'm trying to see how we're going to solve that problem. Mm -hmm. Digitize big spaces, make them so you can manipulate them, um, understand and decorate them and go back. I, I it's, it's just going to explode. So to me, that was the one that, that, that caught my eye today. I apologize, I don't remember the company name, but that was, it's, it's, it's always that. that where, where are the sensors? How are we going to get to content creation for VR? Yeah. That's literally, to me, where, uh -huh. where we're stuck right now. It's sort of like in the days of black and white TV. Mm -hmm. You can buy a headset, we don't know what to watch. And if you go with the early TV shows, it was vaudeville because mm -hmm. that was entertainment, right? So yeah. we put this, you know, kids and people and stuff mm -hmm. on stage on the TV and and it took us 70 years to come up with Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. right? And so the question is, how do we accelerate that into where VR becomes this, this platform to consume and experience things we couldn't do before? Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be travel. I think it's going to be shopping. I think it's going to be, um, but it's, it's, it's also where I've succeeded. It's been personal content. I've been able to, to digitize myself skiing and mm -hmm. put my dad skiing with me and his grandson in VR. Wow. And he took, he took the headset off. He literally looks at me and goes, Wow, I never thought I'd get to go skiing with my grandson. Oh wow! Not that was a cool picture movie you showed me. No, <laughs> I went skiing with my grandson. That was how he really felt it, and so then you see the catalyst. So, so to me, yeah, that's 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 where of, of those startup uh, companies we looked at today in the showcase. That's the one again. I just can't wait. I can't wait to do that, and that's yeah. why I do this stuff. There's things I just want other people to invent so that I can I can go play with it. So. The, the relationship between the human and yeah. the object, yeah. that seems very important to you. Yeah. Like you seem to be willing to have some humanity, to, to add some humanity to everything that you're um, developing. I, you know, I, I, I think, I think it, should, it, should, it should be natural for the, us to, to do that. We, we do form relationships with things that mm -hmm. aren't alive it's, it's it's how we are whether it's a plant okay plants are alive but <laughs> but you know but but even the even you think about your car right if you've had a car and it's gotten you through a lot of tough times and you finally you have to get rid of that car you had an attachment to it as they begin to talk and react to us 
it's only natural for us to to make those experiences with those devices mm-hmm. um, something that we can relate to. So, I, uh, to me, to me, sensors are the glue between the the virtual world yeah. and the real world. So we're trying to give robots sensors to put them into our world, which means mm-hmm. they have to see and they have to hear and they have to feel and smell. Yeah. And we're trying to put people in the virtual world, which means you have to fool your senses, mm-hmm. which and you have to create the content. And it's the sensors that's that glue there. So, I mean, I think... I have a I have a slide I like to show, which literally I, I it's it's a horrible picture I cobbled together of I took a I took a drone and I put the the Amazon Echo on the back of the drone, right? And and that's the that's the next step is it's gonna the the smart speaker is gonna follow you around the house. Wow. And so then the next picture I have is I put fur on it and eyes on it and I make it look like a dog. <laughs> and so, so if the if the Sony Ibo was able to actually actually you know mm-hmm. do all the things that that Alexa could do, suddenly you would have the perfect pet and yeah. be a companion. Wow. It would follow yourself and go to its bed at night, it would charge itself and patrol your house at night, make sure you were safe, you know, and it would change the music and take care of the lights. And if you fell down, it would come over and see if you're okay and call for help. Right? That's what we're gonna have. Wow. And I can't wait. I just can't wait. So autonomous companions, that's what I like to call it. We're not going to call it robots because my sons say robots have claws, right? You know, and I think it's going to be this fuzzy little furry thing we can relate to, but it's also become the, more, the most useful thing. Wow. The technology is going to disappear. The, the phone, the, I give a talk right now, it's called the phone is big. <laughs> because it's where, what are we going to do? What's, what's beyond the phone? So, yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Bye. I think that if you attach an Amazon.Echo to a Roomba, then you'd really have something. Maybe that's just me. Hey, ready for this week's trip down dynamic random access memory lane? On November 1st in 1954, the first transistor radio hit the market. The Regency TR1 was designed by Texas Instruments and manufactured by Industrial Development Engineering Associates. You get the idea, right? It didn't sell particularly well, but it was incredibly important for creating the first commercial market for transistors. And, of course, subsequent transistor radios would sell in the millions. If you happen to have one of those first TR1s back in 1954, odds are you were listening to Rosemary Clooney singing Hey There, Eddie Fisher crooning I Need You Now, or the Cordettes classic Mr. Sandman. On November 6th, 1980, IBM signed a deal with its second choice for a supplier of operating system software for its upcoming personal computer line. IBM simply did not anticipate that software would be anywhere near as important as hardware, thus inadvertently clearing a path for Microsoft to become one of the most important companies in the high-tech industry. As 1952 was drawing to a close, polling showed that Adlai Stevenson was going to beat Dwight D. Eisenhower in a landslide. Though by November 4th, Election Day, the polling was much tighter. CBS News borrowed time on a UNIVAC computer to crunch early voting numbers and predict a winner. Early in the evening, with only 3 million votes tallied to that point, UNIVAC printed out a message that said, quote, It's awfully early, but I'll go out on a limb. The chances are now 0-0 to 1 in favor of the election of Eisenhower. The odds were actually 100 to 1, but since nobody expected either candidate to reach such decisive odds so early, none of the programmers had thought to allow for a three-digit advantage. In fact, 
Since the general expectation was that Stevenson would win, CBS assumed there must have been a computer error and didn't go back to UNIVAC until later in the evening when it seemed more certain that UNIVAC's early prediction was accurate. In this clip from the CBS TV broadcast, you'll hear the voices of newscasters Charles Collingwood and Walter Cronkite and Art Draper, an employee of Remington Rand, the company that built UNIVAC. Lowell, do you mind sitting down just a minute? We've, uh, we're talking about old Univac here. And as I was saying, that as a great believer in the machine, we're having a little bit of trouble with Univac. It seems that he's rebelling against the human element. Uh, it, we fed him some figures which were a uh, little out of the, the line of the sort of thing that he'd been expecting. And so Univac came up and said he just wouldn't work under these conditions. However, the people who operate him are so loyal to him that they say that it wasn't his fault at all. Uh, that it was their fault and our fault for giving him the returns in the in the wrong order. Uh, Draper? Yes, here. Uh, have you got a national uh, prediction from Univac? Yes, Univac's finally come through. Good. Give it to us, huh? We've got Stevenson, 20 states. Eisenhower, 28 states. That adds up to an electoral vote for Stevenson of 217 for Eisenhower, 314. The prediction on this basis is 24,456,000 and some for Stevenson, 27,445,000 for Eisenhower. Thank you very much, Mr. Draper. In other words, it looks as though Eisenhower is going to get it as far as UNIVAC is concerned. Now back to Walter Cronkite. And uh, that's the prediction from UNIVAC, the electronic brain. Let's see what the actual totals are at the moment. Spoiler alert, Ike did, in fact, win that election. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending November 8th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, sometimes along with photos and video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.